Good morning, church. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. My name is Christian. I'm one of the, the elders and pastors here at Cornerstone. And what we're going to be doing over these next few minutes together is uh, we're going to be continuing our time in the book of Philippians. Last Sunday was so cool for those of us that were able to gather, whether in person or virtually. We just took a Sunday just to praise the Lord and worship through communion, to gather around that simple meal of Jesus, representing Jesus' body and blood, which is the ground, his sacrifice and resurrection for us is the, is the basis of the unity that we share together. And that's what that word communion means. So if you were able to join us last week, I hope that you were blessed by that time, but we're gonna continue this morning in the book of Philippians, looking at the latter part of Philippians 2, verses 19 through 30. So if you have a Bible or you wanna open it up on your phone, you can go ahead and open up there. As you do, let me just give you a little bit of a reminder of what we talked about two weeks ago, because this, this message really builds off of that. Two weeks ago, we started in chapter one, verse 27, where Paul says, only let y'all's manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Not just that the gospel is something that we believe, but our manner of life is shaped by this same gospel. That the truths about Jesus we not only believe, but they shape the way that we seek to follow him with our lives. And we saw that this manner of life worthy of the gospel that Paul talks about, he says it's based upon these ideas of being of the same mind, of the same spirit, being of the same love, united in one spirit and purpose. A, a unity is essential to what he's talking about. And we talked two weeks ago about how that unity is not based upon whatever I already care about, whatever is already on my, to be like-minded for the gospel is not just about what I'm already thinking about and then finding people who already think and care about the same things, but the way that Paul goes on to talk about it, and he says the like-mindedness, the unity for the gospel that I'm talking about is based upon all y'all, all of us as a spiritual family saying that we will renounce self-promotion and rivalry and instead, in humility, consider others, consider each other as more significant than ourselves. To look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's what it means to be like-minded for the gospel. And we saw in verses 5 through 11 how this amazing hymn song that, that, that Paul gives us in the middle of this chapter. Where he says the reason why that's what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, humility and sacrificial love, because that's what Jesus modeled for us. He was the one in the highest position, equal to the Father, who did not count his equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. But instead, he made himself nothing, took the form of a servant, became human, and was obedient to his Father to the point of death on the cross. And then the Father, in response to that, has highly exalted Jesus and given him the name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee bows in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. That's that amazing picture. But what we talked about two weeks ago and what I want to remind you of today is all those amazing truths that we see in verses 5 through 11 about Jesus. Well, Paul gives us those not just so that we would have faith that these things are true, but so that we as God's people, as, the, as people of Jesus, might follow him, follow his example of humility and self-sacrificial love. And so as we continue and we start looking at verse 19 today, I want, I want you to keep three questions in mind as we look at this this morning. If it's about following the example of Jesus, let me ask you this. Who are the examples that you're following? Who are the examples in your life that you follow? Not just because you like what they do for a living or that you like the way they dress or they decorate their home or something like that, but who are those who show you the example of Jesus? 
you look at their life and say, man, they show me what it looks like to walk like Jesus. And again, not just those who already care about what you care about. Not just those who are in the profession that you want to be in, but those who truly show you what Jesus is like. So that's the first question. Who are the examples that you're following? The second question is this. Are you seeking to imitate them or just appreciate them? Are you actually seeking to model your conduct off of the manner of life that you see in others? Or do you just go, oh, wow, they are, they are a great person and kind of more put them up on a pedestal? That's the second question. Are you seeking to imitate those who follow, show you the way of Jesus or just appreciate them? And the third question, are you an example for others to follow? Are you conducting yourself in a manner that is worthy of imitation? And if so, if not, what needs to change? You see, because what Paul does in this latter part of Philippians chapter 2 he does something very similar. What he's going to do is he's going to draw the Philippians' attention to two men that they knew named Timothy and Epaphroditus who lived in this manner worthy of Jesus. They were living, breathing examples of this Christ-like sacrificial love. And Paul's going to say, look at them. They're worth following. Because just like us, the Philippians hadn't seen Jesus face to face. They hadn't been able to walk with him and see his conduct. Yes, they could hear the teaching of Jesus. They could hear Paul describe the actions and the character of Jesus. They could even read this letter in which he gives us these amazing truths. But Paul knows that they will be deeply impacted and greatly helped by seeing examples, living, breathing examples, watching mature believers who model the lifestyle of Jesus for them. Next week, we'll see when Chris takes us into chapter three, that Paul's also not afraid to point to himself and say, I am worthy of imitating. It all comes to a head in chapter three, verse 17. Take a look at this one with me real quick. Philippians chapter three, verse 17, it says this. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Paul says to all of them, as you see this in my life, in Timothy's life, in Epaphroditus' life, join in imitating and keep your eyes focused on those who live according to this example. And what I want you to hear from me this morning is this. That command to join in imitating the Christ-like manner of life applies to all believers. If you are a follower of Jesus and you're listening to this, me this morning, or even if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're wondering what is it that Christians are all about, understand this. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are not only a student who seeks to learn truths about Jesus. That's essential. You are a disciple. You are one who seeks to now follow the example of Jesus, to imitate his manner of life. And for that, we need examples, followable people who can show us the way so that we can be examples to others. That's what it means to be a disciple. At Cornerstone, our mission statement from the beginning has been to give every individual an accurate picture of God by helping those who believe become fully devoted followers of Jesus. To be a fully devoted follower of Jesus is to be engaged in helping others to follow Jesus too. Does that make sense? You see, but Paul has a problem that he's facing as he writes this to us in Philippians 2. He calls the Philippians to imitate him, to follow his manner of life. But as you, if you remember, he's stuck in prison in Rome. He can't be there with them to set that example. Now they have some history with him and things like that. But, but how can Paul, in an ongoing way, model Christ for them when he can't be with them? Well, I would say to you that this entire letter 
is an example of Paul working with, within the limitations that he has, within the, the obstacles that he's facing, in order to keep this mission of following Jesus and making disciples going. It's as though Paul says, if I can't be there with you to show you this humility, this manner of life that I've been talking about, I'm gonna send you two guys who can come to you, who will model it for you. Take a look at verse 19 with me. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come too. He says, I'm sending Timothy to you and you know him. You've already seen his proven character. Timothy was this coworker of Paul. When, when Paul came to Philippi the first time, he was there with Paul and Silas. Somehow he didn't get beat up and thrown in prison like they did. But the whole point he's saying is you know him, you've seen him, you know his proven character, you know his manner of life. And as he describes this manner of life of Timothy, I think he purposefully uses phrases that tie in with everything he said at the beginning of chapter two about what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Take a look at this with me really quickly. Look again at verse 20. Take a look at this slide. In verse 20, he says that, for I have no one like him, but literally in the Greek, he uses a word that's very similar to what he said early in the chapter of being of the same spirit. He says, I have no one of the same spirit like him. He's a model of what I told you in verse 27 of chapter one. He's a model of what I told you in verse two of chapter two of what it means to be of the same spirit. Tell you, look again at, chapter, at verse 20. He says that Timothy will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, not like the rest who seek their own interests. And again, he uses that same phrase that ties in with what he commanded them to do in verse four. So it's not only seek your own interests, but also the interests of others. He's telling the Philippians, you know that whole like-mindedness and humility and consideration of others, that like-mindedness that Jesus modeled, Timothy is a model of it too. So I'm sending him to you so you can see and watch and keep your eyes on his example. But even before Timothy gets there, Paul has already sent someone to them who's actually the one carrying this letter, who is also an example worth following. His name was Epaphroditus. He was the one that was actually uh, sent, that, that Paul sent to carry this letter. But listen to what he says about Epaphroditus in verse 25. I mean, we don't know much about Epaphroditus in Scripture, but if this is all you get, this is a pretty good, pretty good resume to see in, of yourself in Scripture. Look at verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger, or literally your apostle, the one that you sent to me and minister to my need. Paul, for whatever else we know about him, we know that Paul thought really highly of Epaphroditus. He says he's like a brother. But more than just a brother that I have a warmer or I'm gonna give him a noogie kind of relationship, he says he's like a brother in arms. He's my fellow soldier in the cause of the gospel. And he's the one first, he says to the Philippians, that you sent to me. We learn, especially in chapter four, that this whole letter was occasioned by the fact that the Philippians had heard about Paul being in prison in Rome and were concerned for him. 
and so brought a gift of money to be able to use to provide for his needs while he's in prison and awaiting trial. And Epaphroditus was the one who headed up that traveling party that came to see Paul. But it seems that somewhere along the line, he got sick. But he kept going to still fulfill that mission of delivering this gift. And by the time he gets to Paul in Rome, his sickness has got to the point where it's really touch and go. He, he, he may not make it. Listen to what Paul says in verse 26. For he has been longing for you all. Epaphroditus has been wanting to get back to see you and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. He says it was really touch and go. He was near death, but God had mercy on him. I, I love that. I was reading one commentator where he was just pointing out the fact that like, the perspective that we often have in illness, this almost assumption that unless something goes wrong, we'll get better, Unless there's a really big problem, there's some sort of a treatment or medicine or we can expect to recover. He says, that is a very new perspective in the history of the human race. He said that most often where we might assume and expect to recover, previous generations, even like the Philippians in the first century, would almost expect at some point I'm going to get sick and die. And they would be surprised by recovery. At least they wouldn't take it for granted. And I love that that's what Paul's pointing out here. He doesn't just say, yeah, Epaphrodite, he was, he was sick as a dog, but you know, he got better after a while. No, he says, this was touch and go. We almost lost him, but God was merciful. That's why he recovered, because of the mercy of God. And not only on Epaphrodite, Paul says, but on me too. He's like, this, this traveling party that comes to meet my needs in prison, I'm so grateful to you for this gift, and I'm even more grateful to God that it didn't come at the expense of one who's like a brother to me. He says, God had mercy on me also so that I would not have exceeding sorrow. So he sends Epaphrodite back with this letter and to say, hey, by the way, guys, I made it. I'm still here. As I was studying about this guy Epaphroditus and this near-death experience, I, I couldn't help, and in this one, he was, he was sent by the Philippian church to go care for Paul. I couldn't help but think of one who we sent, sent from us, to go to the jungles of Indonesia to make disciples amongst the Nagi people. Um, some of you may remember, it was about a year ago that we were gathered in this room together praying for Thomas Shear, one of our missionary partners in Indonesia, because he had contracted an infection that had gotten to the point where his body was shutting down. They were medevacking him to Australia. His family here in the States flew out there because they weren't sure if they would even make it and he, or they would get to Australia in time because he may not make it. But it's so amazing. God had mercy on Thomas. He spared his life. Thomas and Laura and the kids were able to come home and spend several months with us. He was able to recuperate and have time with family. And I love it because what we saw when the Shear family was here with us was even though they were home in the States, even though they were recovering from such a traumatic experience, they didn't hit pause on the mission of making disciples. Thomas was active. He was sharing his, the story of what God had done in his life in various settings, up here on Sunday or in some of our youth ministries. He was regularly praising God for his mercy on his life. Over that time, it was cool to see how both of their kids, Noah and Emma, committed to follow Jesus and walk through the waters of baptism here with us during that time. 
And then it was back in February that his health had recovered to the point where they could go back to the Nagi people. And they've been there since. Think about that. Right before the whole world shut down and travel got so restrictive, they were able to get back in, in, in the tribe where they currently are. Some of their coworkers are home on furlough right now. And if you would, continue praying for Thomas. Right now, the main load of teaching and discipling the believers in the Nagi village rests on his shoulders and on Laura's as well. Let's continue praying for them because he has to continue to monitor his health and pace himself. But I love the fact that I can call Thomas and Laura friends and, and not only friends, but brother and sister in Christ because I see them as examples worth following as those who've chosen, not just initially, to go to an uncomfortable situation and put their lives on the line to make disciples, but even when Thomas's life literally was on the line and God spared him, they said, you know what, for as long as we're physically able, we wanna be back over there and we wanna make disciples amongst the Nagi people. I praise God for Thomas and Laura, and I think that we, it is an honor to call them part of our family. They are examples worth following. But do you remember that second question I asked you at the beginning? When we see someone who's exemplary, when we see someone who gives us an example of the sacrificial love of Jesus, do we appreciate them or do we seek to imitate them? When we see examples like Thomas and Laura and others throughout history, do we go, wow, they are are worth, you should read their book, you should follow them on social media? Or instead, do we go, no, no, like They're showing me the way that I am to walk as well. When I look at Jesus, I see the manner of his life that I read about in scripture, the way that they're living makes sense. And if it makes sense for them, and I'm a follower of Jesus, that manner of life makes sense for me. What Jesus said in Matthew 16 holds true. It has rocked my world throughout my life. He says, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Our examples, those who show us the way of Jesus, they are not just to be appreciated, they are to be imitated. That's Paul's point. Look at verse 29. This is what he wants them. When when Epaphroditus gets home, don't just give him flowers and put a banner out. Here's how I want you to receive him. Verse 29. So receive Epaphroditus in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Again, I think here Paul very intentionally uses language that ties in with what he said of Jesus in verses 5 through 11, especially in verse 8, where he talks about Jesus being one who was willing to be obedient to the Father, even to the point of death on the cross. And then he says of Epaphroditus, he followed that example of Jesus to the point where he nearly was obedient to the point of death himself. So Paul says, honor him and honor those who are like him. Don't just place them up on the pedestal as someone to be revered. See them as those who are maybe a few steps ahead of you, but they are walking the same road that you are called to walk. So go with them, follow their example. Here's what I want to ask you. Who are those in your life that are like Timothy and Epaphroditus? Who are those within our church who are like Timothy and Epaphroditus that we can look at them and see in their lifestyle, see in their conduct an example of Jesus? Do you tend to place them on a pedestal? Do you see them as worthy of appreciation but not imitation? And if so, why? What stops you? 
What stops you at the point of appreciating but not imitating those who walk according to the example of Jesus? Is it fear? Fear for safety or comfort? Fear of, gosh, that would just be so hard. I, could, I don't know if I could ever do that. Is it complacency? I don't know if I have to live like, does everybody have to live like that? Perhaps I think what sometimes creeps into our minds is almost this thought that there's like a, there's like a tier structure in the commitment to follow Jesus. That like there's this base level buy-in commitment for just the regular GI Christian where I can believe in Jesus and believe that he paid for my sin and believe that he's coming again and believe that I'll be with him forever and that that's, that's it. Okay, maybe, maybe it might shape some of my personal morality. Maybe it might shape what I do for about an hour on Sunday mornings and maybe with about 10% of my money. But anything beyond that, like this like crazy hardcore commitment to Jesus, that's like premium level subscription. I'm not sure I'm ready to commit to that. If anyone, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. As a young man, a follower of Jesus in my teen years, I would look at those who were on the mission field or those who were in mission ministry, and even though there was almost, even at that age, a tug on my heart that I feel like that's where God was leading to me, I'll tell you right now, it was fear. Fear of the consequences of my own personal morality being the basis of my employment. I, would, I was like, I'd much rather have a job where if I, if I stumble or struggle in some of the ways that I continue to struggle, at least I can still put food on the table for my family. And it was fear of like my own comfort or the consequences of my inability to follow Jesus faithfully that scared me from, from pursuing what I believe God put on my heart. And it really was that verse in Matthew 16, I think it's verse 24, where Jesus didn't just say, hey, if you wanna go hardcore, if you wanna be a Green Beret Christian, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. No, what Jesus said was if anyone, if anyone wants to come with me, this is what that commitment looks like. The call to model the sacrificial lifestyle of Jesus applies to all of us. So when you see someone who shows you that, that manner of life, when you see someone, you say, man, that looks like Jesus. Look at them as tutors. Look at them as mentors. Look at those showing you the way that you can apprentice under and say, teach me to do what you do. I want to model my life after the example of Jesus that I see in your life. At Cornerstone, again, we are committed to helping those who believe become fully devoted followers of Jesus. A fully devoted follower of Jesus is one who seeks to help others follow Jesus too. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be engaged in making disciples. So that last question I asked you at the beginning, are you an example worth following? Is your life something that someone else could model theirs after? There's a question I used to ask my volunteers for the first eight years I worked here at Cornerstone. I oversaw one of our youth ministries and we'd have small groups and you'd have like usually two leaders who would be with a group of students. And as I walked with those small group leaders, not that I did it perfectly. I mean, I was in my, my early 20s. I was learning so much as I went along. But the question we would regularly talk about together was this. If the students in your small group followed Jesus like you followed Jesus, could we say they were on the right track? If they followed Jesus like you followed Jesus, would they be on the right track? That's the question I continue to evaluate in my life and with those around me. 
I can tell you that, that, that albeit imperfectly, I want to live a life that is worthy of imitation. I want to live in a manner of life that you could look at me and say, okay, if I follow Jesus like you follow Jesus, I'll be on the right track. Not because I want you to be like me or even just that I want you to like me, but because I want to be like Jesus. I want our church to to just, the way that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians, to, to spread the aroma of Christ everywhere we go. That people catch a glimpse of what Jesus is like when they look at us, when they see our speech, our conduct, our, our, our relationships. When they see the way we function, yes, together as a church, but also the way that we, we, we act within our community. And the way that we don't just seek our interests, our preferences. We don't just seek authorization or permission or rebellion to do what we want to do. But instead, we are those who are willing to take the role of a servant, willing to contend for the vulnerable, to stand in that gap and defend those who are without defense, to bestow honor and dignity on those who are dishonored and undignified in our society. We show the example of Jesus Christ in the way that we don't just seek our own comforts, our own glory, our own benefits, but we seek the honor and benefits of others. The bottom line, I'm gonna say it again if you haven't heard me yet. The call to imitate the lifestyle of Jesus applies to every believer. The call to walk according to the example of Jesus and the example of godly men and women that he places around us, it applies to all of us. But... This call to imitate Jesus, the call to imitate him together with those who are following him, imitation requires intimacy. It requires closeness. And if anything, that's the main thing we're wrestling with. The main obstacle we face in the current pandemic, in the current situation, is that it's just hard to be close to each other for any length of time. But I would say to you, it's also not just a matter of trying to go back to the way we used to do things, the way we used to be able to operate. Much of how we used to operate as a church prior to the COVID was good. But I would say to you, if if the Christian life is about imitating Jesus, well, there's really only so much imitation of Jesus that can take place in a one-hour time slot once a week. Now, of course, there was much more that we did as a church. But as a basic rhythm of gathering together on Sundays, especially in a setting where for most of us, we sit and we listen and we sing a little bit, there's only so much imitating of Jesus, of the example of Jesus that can, can happen there. Now, now, don't get me wrong. Preaching is important. It absolutely is. And we will seek to continue to do that. But again, I think this is like Todd's told us throughout our time in the book of Romans earlier on in this, this situation. We just said it's not less, but it's definitely more. We will continue to preach and seek to preach faithfully from God's word. We will continue to sing praise to God. We will continue to be together in in appropriate ways. But I would say to this, there is much more that we must do. And most of it is best done up close. But what do we do then? If it's really hard to be up close right now, what do we do? Well, that's where I would remind you, the reason why we're studying this book of Philippians is because in it, we see Paul setting us an example worth following of how to work within the limitations and obstacles we face in a way that still keeps the mission moving forward. Paul can't get there to model for the Philippians what this looks like. So he sends sends a letter and he sends two followable men who will show them that example. What does it look like for us to get creative, to work with the obstacles that we face 
That's where I would encourage you. Be reading Philippians throughout the week. There's four chapters in it, which means you could get through it almost twice in a given week. Let's continue to read and meditate on this book together. Let's feed our imaginations by the example that we see of Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus here. And then let's share examples of the ways we're finding ways to still go about making disciples. Whether it's creative ways to meet together while maintaining social distance, whether it's ways to still include those who may not be comfortable meeting in person. Can you, okay, think about this. As as, as sick as I get of spending so much time on Zoom, can you imagine what Paul could have done with Zoom? Can you imagine Paul sitting in prison in Rome and going, wait, with this little machine like this right here, I could look face to face in a weird electronic way with the believers in Philippi that I'm so burdened for. That's been such a refresher when I get tired of sitting at the computer so much, talking and talking and talking to people. Man, what would Paul have done if he could have that while he's in prison? I want to be grateful for it and and let it spur creativity to use what we have to still seek to model Jesus for each other. In some ways, I'm glad Paul didn't have Zoom because if he had it, he may not have written these letters that were passed around and copied and preserved and recognized as not just being the words of Paul, but inspired by the Holy Spirit and put into this this canon of scripture and preserved from generation after generation so that we here today, 2020 Simi Valley, could read and meditate and learn from the godly example of Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. As we move forward, rather than, again, we've said this before, rather than just focusing on what we used to do or the things that we wish we could do again, would you join me in praying that God, by the spirit whom he's given us, would empower us to work within the current limitations, to possibly even find ways, and I believe we will, find ways that are more effective for the actual mission of making disciples than even the ways that we used to do things. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you haven't left us alone. Thank you that you lived the ultimate example of what a life of loving God and loving others looked like. Thank you, Jesus, that you have given us followable people, followable examples, men and women throughout the history of the church who spread the aroma of Christ around as they walked. Lord, I pray that we would be such examples, that we would not only appreciate and place our heroes on pedestals, but we see, would see them as guides a few steps down the road that we ourselves are walking. Would you guide us by your grace? We thank you, Jesus. Amen.